the the idea that people could, you know, have a second chance is something which we usually don't find in life. You know, whether the expression is don't cry over spilled milk or whatever it is. People would like to be able to do things a second time. It usually doesn't work. And it's only because nowadays the whole idea of marriage is, is a kind of a disposable thing. And uh, people think of life and marriage as, as a do-over. In the Jewish world, it still isn't. You know, it's very difficult. Anybody knows what it's like whenever you're dealing with not so much the divorce itself per se, but the new world that you're in after divorce. It's not a do-over anymore. It's not like you're, you've turned the clock back and you're an adolescent or coming out of adolescence and you're ready to start over again. It's, it's not quite the same. The second time around is not really the same as the first time. At least in the Jewish world it's like that. And in most things it's like that in terms of education. You go through school and if you didn't do it well the first time around, the four years and the five years and the six years and the eight years of education, second time you don't really get a second chance. You rarely get a second chance. Comes the parsha of Pesach Sheni, and the word Pesach Sheni means the second Pesach. It's a do-over. It's a second chance. These people didn't have a chance the first time. Hashem says, "You know what? I'm going to give them a second chance." I guess it firstly tells us the importance of the Korban Pesach, because usually you don't really get a second chance unless it's something as important as this. Hashem is saying, "We're going to give them a second opportunity." So. Pesach Sheni is really a unique mitzvah because it's the mitzvah of the second chance. It's a do-over. It gives people a second opportunity which is something which therefore is why I'm saying that this is kind of dedicated to Jerry and by extension to everybody else here because it means that hey, you know, life usually doesn't give you a second chance in most things and you didn't do it right the first time around. You're not going to be able to do it the second time. But take a look. Jerry went off to Eretz Yisrael. He's learned there the past year. And now he's back and he wants to learn a half a day. Learn a half a day, work half a day. Just like a person fresh out of, you know, yeshiva, ready for kailal life. I mean, uh, the fact that he's already has married kids of his own, he's ready to, to learn in kailal half a day. That's, that's something pretty remarkable. To a certain extent, by extension, everybody over here is also doing a Pesach Sheni of sorts. A second chance, do-over. That's, you know, it's something which not everybody merits to have. And it's usually the result of you're either Tomei the first time around, or you're there or Choke, you're too far removed. You know, that's really what it is. That you were... You were Tomei and your mind was elsewhere and you're busy doing whatever you're doing and you were too Tomei to partake the first time around or you were just very far removed. You were very, very far removed from where you began, from where you should have been. You were nowhere near the Beis HaMikdash. I mean, those are the two excuses. Either you were near the Beis HaMikdash, the Mishkan, but you were just Tomei, they didn't let you in or you were too far, you were nowhere near the Mishkan. How many of us have our lives that are somewhat like that? We're Tomei the first time and we weren't near the Mishkan. 
we weren't, uh, or rather we were Tomei and we couldn't enter the base of Migdash, or we were Bader Chalka, we were never even near a base of Migdash or Yeshiva. So, if you have those excuses, Hashem says, you know what? That's a legitimate excuse. Therefore, you're given another opportunity and you're able to enter the base of Migdash and bring the Korban. The word Korban, of course, means to come near. Korban is not translated as an offering or a sacrifice. The word Korban, I'm sure by now your Hebrew is good enough for that, right? Comes from what? Korev, to be close. A Korban, to come near. So, you are distant, Bider, Rucholka. You are too far away, too far removed. Now, you're there and you're able to do it. You're able to become near and bring the Korban, to become Korev. That's, yeah. Is this the origin of Pesach Shemi then? Yes. This is the Parsha. So, the fact is that there's a tremendous lesson to be had be, behind the conceptual notion of what Pesach Shemi represents. Something that's important. Not always do you have the opportunity. But now, let's take a look at the origins though of this, of this particular mitzvah. What you have is you have these nameless anonymous people coming and asking Moshe and dialoguing with him and asking him well maybe we could do it this way maybe we could do it that way Moshe says no it's not going to work doing it this way it's not going to work doing it that way finally Moshe says you know what let me ask Hashem I don't have an answer for you now let's finish up the rest of the Rashi we started the Rashi Lomoni Gora about four lines down in the second column how fortunate it is that a human being can be so secure and confident whenever he chooses he wants to speak to the Shechina he's able to I mean who else could be like this in the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu good cash let me, let me ask Hashem I mean, that's, 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 that's un, unprecedented that's the uniqueness, by the way, of the Ruas Moshe, which is something that you also have at the end of this week's Parsha. Parsha's Balwalscha ends with the, with the, where Hashem tells Aaron and Miriam how Moshe Rabbeinu is different and unique from all other prophets. The Rambam, the Rambam actually makes this into one of the principles. One of the principles, right. One of the principles of the, the Yudgim Malikrim, the 13 principles of faith, is the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. It's one of the 13 principles of faith. And Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is different, unlike any other prophet. He's unique. And it's at the end of this week's Parsha. But here we have another, another aspect of it, another uh, part of it, which the Ramam, when he defines the uniqueness of Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy, how it's different than any other prophet, one of the points he makes is the point that we see in this Rashi and we see from this Parsha, namely that Moshe at will at any time he had a problem, would he be able to directly communicate and listen to Hashem, and Hashem would give him a mitzvah. However, there is another lesson to be learned here as well. So, so far what we see is taking this, you know, rather um, seemingly non-relevant passage in Parshas Valoscha, you know, learning Parshas Valoscha, there's a lot of interesting things in it. And this seems to be rather non-relevant to, to us. I mean, Pesach Sheni. What's Pesach Sheni? You read it slowly, and you see a number of interesting lessons. 
the idea of the second chance that usually you don't get. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is different than, you know, he has a problem. He says, oh, let me find out what Hashem says. Hashem doesn't. Gives him one of the Tayyag Mitzvahs. Hashem is one of the Tayyag Mitzvahs. And Moshe Rabbeinu apparently didn't have it at this point till now. That means, I mean, it's a question that Moshe received all Tayyag Mitzvahs at Sinai, and then later on he got it. Apparently over here, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't hear this mitzvah before. And he says to Hashem, what am I supposed to do? Hashem says, by the way, there's another mitzvah that we left out till now. Here's a mitzvah. So that raises now another question. On the one hand, it teaches us Moshe Rabbeinu's unique ability to at will access the source of all mitzvahs. And Hashem gives him a new mitzvah just when he asks this question. But why was this mitzvah held in reserve till this point? That's a very, it's another unique feature, I think, that we have to dwell upon. I mean, this is one of the Taryag mitzvahs. Ultimately, Pesach Sheni is one of the Taryag mitzvahs. So it's one of the Taryag mitzvahs that should have been given. One of the 613 mitzvahs. So Pesach Sheni is one of the 613 mitzvahs. You count it up, this is one of the 613. Well, the Torah is deficient without all 613. So why does it seem to come as an afterthought? It should have come together with the other mitzvahs. Apparently, it's important that it came in this fashion. Obviously, Hashem knows what's going to happen. So he seemingly purposely left it in reserve, waiting for the opportunity to give it when asked. He held it in reserve. So it's a mitzvah, notice, that's being held back until you ask for it, which fits into the theme of what second chances are all about. Second chances aren't there as a given, as a right, as an entitlement. It's there for those that seek it. And not only those that seek it, but as we see from the previous dialogue, they had to seek it rather, rather with great desire. So now we can understand the next part of Rashi. Uruya The truth is this parsha should have been given by way of Moshe, like the rest of the Torah itself, which was given by Moshe. But these individuals merited that the mitzvah should be given, they became the vehicle by which the mitzvah was given. Because good things are given over by good people, by worthy individuals. And the Torah purposely, and Hashem purposely, kept this mitzvah from being given because He wanted these people that really wanted it badly, that they should merit that the mitzvah should come through them. By the way, does anybody know where else in the Torah do we have this idea? Oh boy, see, before you disappointed me, but now you all know. When it comes to women's issues, they really know it. Exactly. We have, let, let, let's take a look at, at the similar passage over there. So here in, in Parshas Pinchas, it brings down how the Benos Lofchot approached Moshe, the Elish Mos Benosov, and these are their names. Machlon Noah, Choglon, Milka, Vesirtzon. But Hamodov, Ne Moshev, Ne Lozor, Akoin. Notice how they come before Moshe, and the laws are very similar to the, 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 this. Again, by the way, is forty years later, and therefore, the right? They didn't give the names, and they say their claims about um, 
that they want inheritance. And you then have in Pasuk Hay, again a very similar phrase, Vayakrev Moshe's Mishpaton of Hashem. And Moshe brings their, their judgment, their law before Hashem because apparently he didn't have the answer. And Hashem says, They're indeed speaking correctly and then tells them the law of inheritance. And it goes to the laws of inheritance there. And um, Rashi, if you look, it's one of the 613 myths as well, correct. If you look in Rashi, in the second column, the last line, last line, This parsha should have really come about through Moshe. but they merited and was written by through them. So here we have two parshas, two myths in the Torah, that Rashi makes note of the fact that really it should have been ideally that the Torah should have been given by Moshe. He should have been, you know, he was the source of the mitzvah, of all mitzvahs. How come you find two instances of where the impetus of what brought about the mitzvah to be given was from some outside source? You have Pesach Sheni, these individuals that were Tomei that approached Moshe, and Moshe says, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I'll come to God. God gives us a new mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. The no Slavchot, we have a similar thing. However, notice that as we saw the Pesukim earlier, how the people here are left anonymous throughout. It goes, And those Anoshim said, it, it doesn't mention who they were. Yet by Benos Slavchot, it makes special note of who they were. Why is that different? Now, what we've seen thus far, is the uniqueness of what Pesach Sheni represents. One thing we already saw from Pesach Sheni is the whole idea of being able to do a do-over. That you don't always have such an opportunity. And here the people approached Moshe and Hashem gives us a special mitzvah, but the special nature of the mitzvah is that you're getting a second opportunity. We also see from here how Moshe Rabbeinu himself is capable of turning on the spigot of divine uh, communication at will. But we also see the principle of that Hashem purposely kept this mitzvah in reserve only to be given to people that really wanted. In other words, connecting the first point we make with the last point we make, yes, there's the concept of doing things and getting a second opportunity and a second chance. But it's not done callously, it's not done because of neglect, it's done by people that really, really yearn for it. Moshe Rabbeinu first has a whole debate with them about, and, and they kept saying things, well, do it this way, do it that way, and Moshe Rabbeinu finally says, okay, I'll come to Hashem with your question. So let's, let's look at some of these points very quickly in what we have on the page in front of us. I want to make a note over here. You know, nowadays they talk about Haredim. You know, the Haredim versus the Datiyim, 
or in America, Haredim versus modern Orthodox. It's, it's, it's an interesting phrase that's being, that's used. And sometimes it's, 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 it's almost used as a pejorative, you know, Haredim, people that tremble, the tremblers. You know, it's almost like the, the Quakers, you know, the Shakers, that's exactly what Haredim means, right? The Quakers and the Shakers. Well, what does Haredim mean to be horrid? It means to quake in fear, to quake and to shake in fear. So Haredim would really be translated as the Quakers, Jewish Quakers. Jewish shakers. That, that, that's what it means. And it's not necessarily used as a complimentary uh, term. But this is really where we find it first used. The idea of Haredim. Haredim elements. No, it actually is used in the Navi. The Navi already calls Haredim al Hashem. It's used in the Navi. But, so we have to understand what the term actually means. It means people that are so concerned about doing the mitzvah that they don't want to hear no. They don't want to hear no. Rather than, I'm telling you, what can I do? I'm out of it, you know. We'll see how the attitude changes later on in the Parsha. So these individuals were Sherem and Haredim al mitzvahs. In fact, again, we went through the dialogue a little bit earlier. The Sifri brings down, Loma Nigora, why should we be deprived? So Moshe says, well, you can't bring a korban when you're Tomei. So they said, well, what about Kochim Shalom Achrayis? Why not? He says, well, you can't eat it, Betumah. So they said, okay, so we won't eat it, Betumah. Have the Kohanim just be Zorik the Dam. Let other people eat it. And they made a Kalbu Chomer. Moshe Benin says, okay, I'll ask Hashem. So the conversation went back and forth. The debate went back and forth. So he quotes here from the Sefer Zichon Meir. Let's take a look at the Lebir Ho'inyan. We'll do it inside. Yesh Lahakim Divrei Gemara. I don't know how many of you remember it, but we learned this Gemara and Brachas rather a number of times. Bowere, take a look at the difference from the earlier generations to modern times. Bowere, Earlier we used the phrase Haredin to represent a certain type of an individual that we have over here. Now we will use another very current term which we see in the Gemara. And that expression is modern orthodoxy. Okay, where do we see modern orthodoxy in the Gemara? Well, that's the Gemara. The Gemara says, take a look at the difference from earlier. Now, we're, we're not speaking about Chassel conservative and reform people. That we're not speaking about, because those are people that don't really believe in the Torah, they don't accept Torah and Sinai, they don't accept Thai arguments, they don't accept Halacha. As we've seen, right? That what? I was just saying more like the Sadducees. Um, no, I, I, right, the written as opposed to the oral. Right, right. No, what uh, I'm referring to the fact that is that nowadays even people that call themselves halach conservatively, as we see from uh, the last events of the past month or two, that the mask has been removed, and basically there's no real difference. They don't accept Torah and Sinai because if you don't accept the words of the Torah as being as being binding, and you're saying that 90% of what's here either didn't happen or is irrelevant and only 10% is divinely inspired, it's really a pretty poor track record of what's being inspired over here, when you know most of it is, is a lie. Um, Jonathan uh, Rosenblum just recently wrote an, uh, an editorial in the, um, in the Jerusalem Post, in which he says that, like, um, you know, what does this guy mean that the Torah is divinely inspired? It's a pretty poor 
reflection on its divine inspiration of the very first thing that God's inspired them to do is to tell us a real whopper. You know, they came out of Egypt, they had an exodus, there were ten plagues, they crossed the Red Sea, the Egyptians, none of that happened, right? Because they were indigenous people in, in from, from the land of um, Canaan. So there was no, there was no exodus, there was no slavery in Egypt. There was no going through the wilderness for 40 years with the pillar of fire, and there was no Sinai, and there was no crossing of the Red Sea, and there was no ten plagues. So exactly what is it that's divinely inspired in the Torah? The very first thing God's inspired people to do is tell them a real doozy of a whopper. I mean, it's, and then of course most of the myths are irrelevant as far as they're concerned anyway. So you're kind of left with like 5% of the Torah that maybe is divinely inspired. That's a pretty poor track record. In any case, we're not speaking about conservative reform. When the Gemara is then therefore speaking about the difference from earlier generations to later generations, we're talking about people that are Shomrei Torah Mitzvahs. Yet the Gemara is trying to draw a contrast, as we will see, between old-style orthodoxy and modern orthodoxy. I mean, that's clearly what we're talking about. Doros Rishonim and Doros Achronim. And this, by the way, is a very crucial an important point to recognize if you want to define modern orthodoxy, not as modern orthodoxy in terms of its uh, ideological basis, which I don't want to really get into now. I mean, more in terms of the way it's actually practiced by the practitioners of modern orthodoxy. Well, take a look and you'll tell me yourself if it sounds familiar. Doros Arishainen, the old-fashioned people, if you will, earlier generations, they would bring their, their, their produce through the front door and it would be chayven They would bring their um, produce through the roof, through the chotzer, through these uh, like corralled areas in the back in order that they should be potter. Why are they potter from Miser? The Omar Rabbi The law is, they derive it from Sukkim, that you're only chayev in Miser for the produce that sees the front of the house. In other words, the stuff that comes in through the front door is chayev in Miser, but stuff that's snuck in through the skylight, or through the back door, or through the basement, through the cellar, that, those grains, aren't chayv and miser. So now you have an easy way out. You have a uh, lot of produce, miser, that's 10%, that's quite a bit. You want to be potter from miser, you have an easy way out. Early generations didn't opt for the way out. They brought it in through the front. Modern Orthodox would bring it through the back in order to avoid the, the mitzvahs, in order to avoid miser. What is therefore saying, what? But, but again, you know, I'm, I'm using updated terminology, but you could read it into the Gemara. I'm just trying to show you attitudes. The point is that what we're discussing here is really attitudes to mitzvahs, is really what you see from all of this. The truth is you can judge any individual's love and desire for mitzvahs by his love of Hashem by his approach to mitzvahs. Doros 
Higpidu, modern generations, again, let's call it modern orthodox, because again, we're not speaking about conservative reform, we're only speaking about Shomei Tarmitzes. Modern orthodox people are very scrupulous and careful not to chas v'shalom violate the Torah. They would not want to violate the Torah. Hikpidu omnam shloli koshel ba'ovoin achilas They would not eat tevel. They would not eat something which is forbidden. Because we're talking about miser of your produce, and uh, certainly no one wants to eat what's forbidden. No one wants to eat treif. V'osu es hakol k'day she'efshur yielechos aferz k'dasu k'dit. They made sure that it's one hundred percent glad kosher. No one would dream of going to a hotel that wasn't under some hechsher, oh you, okay? And it usually says on a glat kosher. Or in the words of Rav Gifter, he always used to refer to glat kosher, yo of the glat yosher name. It was glat kosher, but not glat yosher. Well, it wasn't necessarily correct. It could be glat kosher, but not necessarily correct. Whatever the case is. So, these kinds of individuals would certainly be very careful not to eat anything treif. However, the way they approach it, but take a look at how the generation, by the way, this is the Gemara is talking in its times. So obviously they also had their version of old-fashioned Orthodox versus modern Orthodox. But things haven't changed much in about 1,500 years, have they? So he says that you could still judge people's attitudes with the following. Had they been on the level of the earlier generations, they wouldn't be looking for loopholes. Why? Those that love Hashem and love the Torah and the mitzvahs do not look for ways to get out of mitzvahs, out of obligations, to be potter from chiyuvim. Ela adraba, the chabshim heim drachim, they're really looking for ways, ketzad l'schayv mitzvahs, to really be chayv in mitzvahs. They're not looking for ways out, they're looking for ways in. I had recently a story, which I hope I won't embarrass the person if I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, since it's relevant to this, to this particular issue. Earlier I embarrassed Jerry by saying that Jerry is a good example of a person looking for a second chance. Pesach Shani, as I said, the shir is really dedicated to Jerry and by extension to everybody else. The idea of a second chance. But attitudes. You know, it's brought down a halach and shulchan that if a coin has to do a pigin aben, so Technically, are you allowed to return the five shkolim back to the person that gave it? Technically, you're allowed to. In fact, there's a whole question that maybe you could even make a maton al-manas originally. Because since we've already learned in the Gemara uh, the past couple of weeks about the concept of maton al-manas as being valid, so you want to marry a woman, could you give her something conditioned that she gives it back to you? Is that called a valid maton? even though the person ultimately doesn't benefit and you place that stipulation in the original transaction, but is it deemed a valid transaction? So the same thing would apply if you want to do a pidyin aven, where you tell the coin, I'm giving it to you, conditional that you give it back to me. And you make that stipulation. So is it called a valid transaction or not? But even, even without that 
particular technical angle to it, which is questionable as to whether it would apply or not. The Shochnar frowns upon Kohanim that just give it back naturally to the person because it comes out that the person thinks it's a joke or whatever the case may be. It also deprives other cards. There's a number of reasons why it's not really advisable for the coin to give back the money that he takes from the thing because it starts to have precedence and then other go on and then the person thinks it's a joke and then whatever it is. It says by poor people, it's okay. You can do it if a guy is a poor person. You want to give it back because you feel bad for him, go ahead and do it. But to do it as a general, um, as a general practice should not be done. But there are many people, I see many times that people just naturally expect, hey, you know, now, by the way, silver is not so expensive. It's, uh, I don't know, was it like five, six dollars per silver dollar? What does it cost? Ten? It's ten dollars per silver dollar. It was a period when silver prices were very high. I mean, uh, silver, I think, reached the peak of about close to $100 an ounce. Yeah. 50. Oh, it was 50? No, no, I think, I think it got higher than that. Yeah, about, about 60. No, there was, like one, no, there was one point for like a period. Okay, but you're right. But let's say when it was like $50 an ounce. Five. Yeah, it's one, one per thing. So, what was, right. When it was holding by, let's say, around $50 an ounce, plus the premium that you pay for the coin itself, a silver dollar each one would have cost about $60, $70, or something like that. I mean, five silver dollars, and it's a good few hundred dollars. So, you know, naturally, <laughs> I want it back. What do you mean? But people lost sight of the fact that it's a mitzvah. They were looking for ways out. Looking for ways out. And it became general practice. And in certain circles, it's, it's viewed that way. Uh, this past week, I had the opposite situation. I was a little bit troubled by the fact that, uh, might as well mention the name, uh, Michael wanted to do opinion on himself. Now, he wasn't, and, and I went through and looked in the Shulchanar, he was not chayv to do it. In fact, not only is he not chayv, he was potter, and he was really supposed to kind of keep the money for himself, you know. Uh, even if a coin would have come over to him and said, I don't know if your opinion on was good, uh, doesn't matter, he'd be potter. And, of course, none of us can really accurately say 100% that we're convinced that, uh, which is another reason why sometimes Kohanim give it back, is because they may feel a little guilty if they're not really Kohanim, but whatever the case is. But he insisted that he wanted to do it. So I talked to him, I said, and I started thinking, but nevertheless, I should really give it back to him anyway, because he's not hired to give me the money. It's kind of under mistaken notions if you keep it. But he wanted it like that anyway. In other words, what you're really doing is you're, rather than looking for a way out, you're really looking for a way in. Most people are looking for ways out. But the way you judge a person on Oye Vashem or Oye Mitzvah is he's not only not looking for a way out, but you're actually looking for a way in. What you see from the people of Pesach Shein is that they kept arguing with Moshe for a way in. Could you imagine you go to the Rav and he says, kosher, you can eat it, you can do it. Look, everybody's looking for ways out. I mean, I, I, you know, invariably you ask Rav, you think he'll give a header, you think he'll Everybody's looking for a header. No one's looking to go around from one Rav to another and say, no, you should be mach. Who looks for chumers? You know, it's, it's a shame that Harry's not here. Charedim. Charedim ala mitzvahs. As it says, these were anoshim 
Kisherim Magid Shoyu Bnei Adam Kisherim Becharedim Al Hamitzvus. That's what the Sifri says. Again, I'm quoting from Sifri, and we're quoting from Gemara. You know, it sounds so up to date and modern, and even the terminologies are very, you know, uh, remarkably modern sounding. But I'm telling you, words that you see in front of you, you have in front of you. This is a Gemara in Brachas, and it's a Sifri. And the Sifri refers to the people that were looking for Chumras to do the Korban Pesach as Charedim. The Gemara talks about people that are looking for ways out as Doiris Achroinim, modern times, modern Orthodox. That's the defining thing. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. The idea of looking for Chumras has a terrible, terrible downside. No question about it. But again, what we're trying to do is we'll talk about the flip side when it's relevant. But sometimes it's always important, especially we have to be a little bit contrarian. I don't think there's anybody in this room that has that particular problem. I mean, I'll tell you, if we had a bunch of Shiva boys here, I'd have to give a different cheer. Because you don't want to preach to the converted. You don't want to preach to the choir that they're always there, rah, rah, going on over there. If I would be giving you a share over here about how important it is to integrate the spiritual with the physical and how life requires us to enjoy things and that we as Jews are not like the Christians. The Christians are against physical pleasure and the Christianity is of their original sin and their celibate and all that. But we Jews, we embrace life and we love life and we feel that we should enjoy things and everything else. Everybody will be nodding their head over here, giving me a... Okay. But, because you all want to hear that. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. It's true. But there's no point in telling you what you want to hear because you naturally gravitate and it sticks like glue and then you don't stop to think about the critical parts of that that are maybe a little bit different. Again, we have to fine-tune it afterwards. The Rambam says that the middle path is the right path, except when, except when you find yourself gravitating to one side, you have to go to the other side in order to get back into the middle, giving the example of something that's straight versus something that's bent. If you have something that's crooked and bent, You'll never straighten it out by just bending it to a straight position. It keeps bouncing back. You have to bend it to the other side, and then it'll bounce back because that's the nature of the pressure. Um, that, that, you, know, you have to go like that. So therefore, we have to be aware of the other side of the coin. And Haredim have to definitely be aware of the other side of the coin as well. But the concept behind wanting to do a mitzvah as a measure and the yardstick of your Avas Hashem is very, very important. And we see it over here. And I'll furthermore show you the inconsistency as we'll get to the next part. But I have to make note of this right here and now. So therefore, we see over here, Oave Hashem don't look for ways out, they look for ways in. Ha'hevdul be'adoros hu'bizeh. She'yachas be'adoros v'shayim l'yonam aruchniyim. The way that Doros Rishonim approached spiritual matters is very similar to the way Doros Achronim approach physical and material things. Now, that's why I'm trying to show the inconsistency why this is so important. Because, again, let's judge a modern Orthodox person. See, he's going to say, hey, one second. Be relaxed. You have to be Haredi and be always so nervous and nervous about, you know, getting every single mitzvah, every chumra into it. Hey, be a little bit relaxed. No, that's okay. But is that the way you are about your material things? 
I mean, how are you when it comes to your material things? Do you look for the adequate and the satisfactory, or does it always have to be the best? Do you say, yeah, it's good enough? Or no? When you go to a hotel, are you busy looking at the way the dining room looks, the way your room is, do I get the corner view, do I have a view of the thing, is the bed's exactly right? And you sit down at the table, mm, I think this glass is a little bit dirty, and you call the waiter, I want another glass and I'm not going to pay a dime. Yeah. Oh, who's giving the shiurim over here? I mean, who thinks about that? Yeah, it's something that's thrown into it. But let's, let's face it, most people nowadays when it comes to the material and physical things are perfectionists. You want everything just right. It's good, there's a lot of things that are good enough. You know, do you want a good enough marriage? Well, it has to be just right. Fine. Your shirt, your tie, your suit, top of the line. Mitzvahs, what do you mean? This rub gives a heter, and that rub gives a heter, and this one says it's okay. I mean, what's the inconsistency over here? When it comes to spiritual matters, you're looking for ways out. But you're not like that with the rest of your life, with things that count. When it comes to the rest of your life, you're looking for top of the line, not adequate. So what's a Haredi? What's Doros Rishonim, says the Gemara? Doros Rishonim were not looking, they made sure they brought their miser on the front door. Doros Achronim are bringing through the back door. But it's not like they're like that with the rest of their lives. They're only like that when it comes to mitzvahs. When it comes to mitzvahs, secondhand is good. I mean, I know people that when it comes to buying cars, and it comes to buying clothing, they'll spend top dollar. When it comes to buying tefillin, they'll be proud of the fact that they buy tefillin for half of what I spend for my children's tefillin. No, and they're proud of the fact that they got top of the line. Because if they spend $500 on a pair of tefillin, they'll be proud of the fact, I bought top of the line tefillin. Cost me $500. $500 I spent about a year now trying to get my kids to fill in. Shlomi's to fill in cost me then $1,700. Now when I was in Eretz Yisrael, I was able to get for my LA to fill in that only cost me $1,200 and I consider it a big mitzvah. I consider it a mitzvah that I only spent $1,200 on to But the car that I drive is whatever. I think as far as I'm concerned, it's a luxury car. But then I'll see people driving luxurious cars. They would dream of driving a car like mine but they'll be proud of the fact that their tefillin only costs, I mean costs rather, so much, it costs $500, top of the line. And they call it top of the line. You, you go into the shuls, into most modern Orthodox shuls, that are generally populated by affluent people. I mean, we don't even have to go into what they are. In Riverdale, in New Rochelle, and many of the people there that are driving good cars, living in nice homes, and taking vacations. I mean, they'll, they'll take a sukkah's vacation and it'll cost them $25,000 for a sukkah's vacation. You've heard of such things? Easily, or Pesach vacations. Will krechts and complain about why the Lulav and Esri cost them so much. And they're only paying $65 for the set. They want the rabbi, it's a very labor-intensive thing, the Lulav and Esri, as we've already learned. It's, it's quite labor-intensive. And they expect that the rabbi should provide them with a little bit of an estuary. Yeah. But what are you spending? $67, outrageous, this price gouging that's going on over here. And, and they're not the ones that are spending $150 for it. They're spending, you know, whatever it is, $60, $70, and they feel that they're overpaying. Like, 
Why? Why is it costing so much? They complain about it. So it's the same idea. Yet, when you go to Lakewood, and okay, I mean, I know what Lakewood is today, but let's say in my days, you know, the, the homes, the houses, the cars, the clothing wasn't exactly top of the line, but uh, they naturally spent quite a bit of money when it came to Lulu and Esther, and they bought for their children also. And they didn't really complain about it. It's, I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's a kind of an inconsistency. So that's why I have to point all of this out, because naturally if I come here and give you a share and say, well, Jews believe in this and that, and everybody, it's so agreeable to everybody. We Jews are, believe, we're not like the Christians, no way. We believe that we could enjoy life and we have to sanctify the physical, right? Everybody loves that. We have to elevate and sanctify the physical. Exactly how are you elevating and sanctifying the physical? Well, I enjoy it by definition. That's called elevating and sanctifying the physical. Okay, I'll make a brach on it. That doesn't. And then already, let me go wholehearted and enjoy it. We, we're, we're into life. We're into luxuries. Jews have become very much like, like Italians in, in terms of their, their physical uh, whatever. So you have to be aware that there's a concept of looking for top of the line. And there's a concept of top of the line in mitzvahs. And not just top of the line when it comes to material wealth. And let's face it, that's when you walk into, and, and this by the way is a key defining way of defining the modern orthodox versus the Haredi. And again, I'm not talking about modern orthodox philosophy and ideology, because that's a whole different ballgame, that's, that's something else. There are many modern orthodox people and rabbis that are very much into doing the mitzvah, but they have a certain approach to life which is very different than what you would call Haredi, and that deals with, with secular knowledge and you know universities, and whether you embrace those things or not, it deals also with Eretz Yisrael, deals with certain modern ideal, you know, ideologies, that has to do with a different thing. But the masses of people that are not exactly very philosophical, they don't know from the philosophy, they don't know from nothing, they call themselves modern orthodox by default because they have a lukewarm relationship with religion is really what it is. And therefore they find that it's in tune with those people that give them the ways out. But, I mean, I, I, I'll tell you like it is, Norman Lamb always decries this point. He's always talking about the fact that everybody thinks that, that modern orthodoxy is without passion and it's, it's power, it's neutral, it's lukewarm. It's, no, we're just as passionate as them about this. We just have a different, which is fine. The only thing is the masses of the people that identify with that label are usually the people that are looking for ways out. Doris Achreinen. Doris Achreinen is modern orthodox. Translated, Doris Achreinen, modern times. And obviously they're orthodox. Charedim is, and you see the differences. How they relate to the physical versus the, the spiritual. So uh, let's take a look at some more of this. We know how far how far they'll go to make sure they get the best. And if you don't get what you want, you feel the pain. This is the approach of the B'nai Aliyah, of those people that are that are spiritually elevated in Torah mitzvahs. When we see the dialogue between them, 
Mevinam Onu Hate, now we can understand why they deserved and merited the title Kesherim and Charedim al These people were true Charedim. They earned the title. Because they didn't want to accept the fact that they are going to be deprived. They said, Lomani Gora. They felt a deprivation. They didn't feel they were potter. You're potter. You don't have to do it. You're potter. No, I'm being deprived of such a major mitzvah. They felt deprived. The way people that, you know, you go tell someone who uh, bought himself a Chevy instead of a Lexus. Hey, you have a car. It works. You're able to get to work. You know, you can get there. You're a potter. You don't have to get a Lexus. It'll work. But it's not a question of potter and time. You need a car, you know, like... Uh, you have a job, you're living in New Rochelle, and you're working in Manhattan, so you need a car, let's say. So you bought a car, it works, so you're a potter, you don't need a Lexus. What do you mean, I'm potter? I'm deprived. A person that only has a Chevy and not a Lexus is deprived. He's not potter, he's deprived. When it comes to mitzvahs, oh, I'm potter. Yep, no, you know, I'm potter, good, fine. These were people that said, Lomo Nigora, we feel deprived if we don't have a major mitzvah. So they earned the title. So you would think based on that that they, the Chumash would go out of the way to point out ah, who these people were. Good, good Kasha. Good Kasha. So therefore, so therefore, as he says, so Bissarvim will be Dosim al they thereby demonstrated what Haredim they really were. Now, thank you. The Gemara Mesupri now brings down an interesting, uh, again, something which we've learned about a number of times, we haven't gotten into the daf yet. The Gemara brings down the following um, you know, um, episode that hasn't yet occurred, it'll be occurring when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, the Goyim are going to complain to Hashem and say, why did you give us the opportunity? Why did you give us the opportunity? The Jews, you know, they have the Torah, the mitzvahs, they have the opportunity, we don't have it. Because now they're coming as Pesach Shein type people. <laughs> Give us a chance. Give us a makeup exam. A makeup exam. A do over. So they're going to come to Hashem and they'll say to him, Give us a second chance. So they're basically asking for a second chance. So Hashem says, Okay, I'll give you a makeup exam. A second chance. A Pesach Shaini, if you will. Actually, instead of giving them a Pesach Shaini, He's giving them a Sukkah Shein. It's interesting. Pesach is the Jewish holiday. Sukkah is more internationalized, more universalized, if you will. There's a reason, by the way, for that. It's interesting because we find in Sukkah that they, they bring 70 bulls corresponding to the 70 nations. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, aspect of Sukkah. Okay, that's, that's also true. <coughs> so Hashem says, I'm going to give you a mitzvah kala. And what is that sukkah? So, he makes them have the mitzvah. And what happens is, So they all make sukkahs on their rooftops. HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings a heat wave, a chamsen. It's a real big heat wave. And it becomes so hot that it's unbearable in the sukkah. And you want to go into your air-conditioned house? So they go out, they go, this is terrible. And they go out of the sukkah and they kick the sukkah. So the Gemara asked the kasha over there. 
Vareik din also shiots So what I do wrong really? The halacha is mitzayer is potter from a soul. Mitzayer. That's the halacha. If you feel pain, if you feel anguish, if you feel very uncomfortable, you're potter from a sukkah. Whether it's rain, or it's bugs, or it's mosquitoes and gnats, or flies, or bees, or very, very hot. If the sukkah is unbearably hot, you have a right to leave and walk into an air-conditioned house. Why is Hashem brings it about that it's very hot, and they're feeling mitzayer. So they're potter from the sukkah. The Gemara says in the Terence, yes, Nehid the potter, but do they have to kick it on the way out? In other words, they're potter, but look at the attitude that they have. What's this sukkah all about? It's too uncomfortable, and they go out kicking it. You're potter, but you don't have to kick it. What Hashem is showing is, and that's what we have to contrast with the concept of Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is a second chance, but it's there only for those people that really seek it and really show an honest thing. What did we say before? Who's Pesach Sheni for? For those people that were Tomei Nefesh the first time, or they were there for Chokam. They were far away, they were distant. That's when we talk about people that want to come and learn and want to be given a second chance. The ones that were the first time, they didn't know. They couldn't come into the base of Mikdash. They couldn't come into the base of Medrash because they were Tomei Lenefesh. They were Tomei. Tomei Lenefesh. They couldn't come in. Or they were Derech or Chokah. They were distant. They were far. They were away from Yiddishkeit. They didn't know better. They couldn't enter the base of Mikdash. They were Derech or Chokah. Now they know. Now they're no longer Derech or Chokah. Now they're not Tomei. And if they really want, Hashem gives you a second chance. The Goyim are kind of arguing the point with God, saying, well, why don't we get a second chance? And Hashem has to God, prove to them why it is that they were not given a second chance. Because I know what your attitude is. Your attitude, you're not, to get a Pesach Sheini, you have to be worthy. You don't just get Pesach Sheini because you're entitled. It's not an entitlement. You don't have an entitlement to a second chance. And that's what we said earlier when we began. Most things in life don't give you second chances. That's the nature of life. Why should tolerances be any different? You don't get a second chance at marriage. Of course you do. But as we said, what does that mean? All depends. Depends really on the society that you're living in. Nowadays, it, it kind of feels that way. Because since divorce is so prevalent, it, it is a little bit easier the second time around. But certainly under the way conditions used to be, and even today to this very day, and certainly in the Jewish world like that, a woman who is a divorcee really has a much more difficult time than the first time around. And a man also. And especially if there's kids, and especially if time passed by, you're trying to make a go with a second marriage in the former world, it's going to be very, very difficult. It's doable, but it's very, very difficult. It's fraught with difficulty. Second chances don't come easy. If you don't take your schooling seriously when you're going through it with high school, you know, I, sometimes I speak to people, talk about kids, and you know, they're unhappy, should they switch schools? I said, you know, you can't really go flitting about from high school to high school, and you know, because you're not gonna have a second chance. So someone just recently came to me with, um, from a guy, the guy gives a Dafyomi share. You know, he knows his stuff. And he has a son who, you know, he learned. But, he sent them to, uh, 
for school, whatever. Uh, not MTAs. I don't want anybody to think that's what I'm talking about. I sent him to a school. And now they tell me, he says, he really wasted the, the, the first three years. They're nowhere. What are we going to do now? It's 12th grade. They want to do this, that, whatever. All kinds of ideas. Trying to get him to another yeshiva and everything else. It's, 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 it's sort of too late. You can't really do it over because it's a crucial phase in your life. And with education like that also, in the secular world, high schools, colleges, you don't really get a second chance. Most of life doesn't really give you a second opportunity, a second chance. In most important things, certainly. If you work hard at it, you sometimes get the second chance. And, and it'll work. But you can't really expect it. And the same has to be understood that Torah mitzvahs is like that also. You don't generally get a second chance. So the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni was given by people, or two people, that really asked for it. Hashem held the mitzvah in reserve. That's part of the reason why he held the mitzvah in reserve. He's not going to just give it off the cuff. Oh yeah, there's always a second chance. If you go where there's always a second chance, you'll never get there in life. And um, we know that to be the case in most cases. For Hashem to have given Pesach Sheni as initially a second opportunity would have missed the point of what second opportunities are about. It's not about that it's a given that you're going to have a second chance. And therefore it has to be given by people that really, really seek it out. Says, oh, now I'm going to give it to you. So it made perfect sense, therefore, why Hashem withheld the mitzvah and didn't give it to Moshe. Because if he would have given it initially to Moshe, you would have gotten the wrong message. For it would have cheapened Pesach Rishon as Pesach Sheni. Had Pesach Sheni been given initially, both would have been cheapened. This day or this day, it's like tests, you know. There's a makeup day right away, those that don't take it this day could take it that way. You already give it like that, it cheapens both. It diminishes both. If you give it initially where you have this or this, both are, are, are kind of lessened. It's like I always say, um, you know, if a student goes to a principal and says, listen, you know, uh, I, I, I need permission to go home. Because, uh, why? Go home. It's a school day. I have this terrible headache. Terrible headache. And also, I, I happen to have a uh, second cousin's uh, bar mitzvah. And also. Yeah. So you're giving two excuses. Yeah. So what have you done with those two excuses? You've ruined each one. Not that you now have a double reason to go home. You've ruined each one. He goes, I got a headache, I got a headache. I, I just can't function. So you argue the point is the headache severe enough to let you home. Okay, maybe, yeah, I mean, you stick to your guns. It's really, really bad. I'm, I, I can't think. Okay, okay, go home. You come with saying, I have a second cousin's bar mitzvah, so you have to go to second cousin. You don't understand the second cousin is so close to us. The first cousin is like an uncle. It's like we grew up together. Oh, is that important to go but you go say, listen, I have a headache. I know the headache is not a good enough excuse. But I also have a second cousin's bar mitzvah. Yeah, and I know the second cousin's bar mitzvah is not really so crucial to go. But I also have a headache. So by giving two excuses, you've ruined each one. Each one on its own stands much better than the two. So sometimes when you have two things, each one cheapens the other. You know, Pesach, or Pesach, very important. You could do it either this day or you could do it that day. So what have you done? You haven't shown its importance. You've trivialized both. Therefore, you give Pesach Risham. And you're Chayim Chorus if you don't do it. You're Derech or Chaykam. You're Tomei Lunefesh. Okay, we understand. It's so important of a mitzvah that you're going to get a second chance. It's a makeup because it's so important.
But the way that the mitzvah was given also had to be received by people that say, we want, we yearn for it. It's so important to us. Then you're given the second chance. Goyim, Goyim leave the sukkah. And not only are they showing that they don't really want a second chance, they're looking for a way out. And as soon as they get the way out, they're out the door and they kick the sukkah. They kick the sukkah. They heed the potter. But the Utei Mavati, do they have to do it? Yehudi Goy, a Jew and a Goy, they both leave a sukkah. They both have the same excuse. Mitztair, potter, min a sukkah. But the way they leave the sukkah teaches us the distance between them in their attitudes and in their approach to the mitzvah. They're both equally potter. The patur is the same for both. They're equally potter. Nevertheless, look at the vast difference between their attitudes to the mitzvah, which is a reflection on their spiritual level. Their spiritual level could be shown by their attitude, even though they're both equally potter. One of them, Hagai Roya Pator, he sees the fact that he's halachically potter. He sees an excuse to get out of it. He's potter from the yoke of mitzvahs. And therefore, he goes out of the sukkah in a haughty, arrogant fashion. And he kicks it. The Yehudi, who's looking to do the mitzvah, and he feels bad that he doesn't have the opportunity to do the mitzvah, that the mitzvah was taken away from him, feels that deprivation. He feels deprived from the mitzvah. So how does he leave the sukkah? Like the Mishnah says, And he walks out humbly feeling bad. Like a slave that goes to a master, to the king, and the king spills something in his face, and he feel, you feel terrible about it. And you like walk out with humility, and you walk out feeling bad. A Jew leaves the sukkah when it's raining, feeling bad. The guy leaves it, happy, haughty, and arrogant. That distinction is a major one. It's not only just you're both potter. It's your attitude. And attitudes count a great deal in determining of the spiritual stature of the person. The Haredi al-Mitzvah, which is the Pesach Sheni person, who's looking for a way in, shows you deserve the second chance. And then you're successful. Not only are you successful, but you're successful to the degree that the Torah actually gives you the right to be the cause of the mitzvah being given. The Torah withheld the mitzvah, Hashem withheld the mitzvah from Moshe, and you became the catalyst by which the mitzvah was given to Kal Yisrael. That's, that's not Stam being successful. You become now imprinted in Jewish history as the person that brought this mitzvah about. These people become the, the catalyst. Question as to why they're not mentioned? No. Oh. Another lesson besides the attitude of the Haredi versus the modern Orthodox so-called over here is the idea that if you really try hard enough though, you will succeed. That's, that's another lesson here. I mean, we're just taking different lessons out of Pesach Sheni. One is, you know, uh, the Haredi, Moshe Rabbein, with the people, and they seek it out. But also the fact that they didn't really give up. And they were like searching and searching and they didn't really have a good answer because Moshe Rabbein, you know, basically blew away every approach that they had. Yet ultimately they were successful and that teaches us that even when you feel like you're about to give up because you're not going to make it, you know what, go that extra level and you'll get the siyat of the shmaya. and if you get the siyat of the shmaya, you'll succeed. Because ultimately these people did succeed in their, in their endeavor. So it teaches us 
don't give up. Don't give up and don't give up hope because you will succeed. These people were successful and it teaches us how a person has to struggle to the point of even when it looks like the deck is stacked against him and he's not going to do it, he's going he's to make it. So that's another important lesson what Pesach Sheni teaches us. It teaches us its testimony to the fact that if you want something, if you will it strong enough, you will, you will succeed. A she'ifa, therefore if a person has a cheshik and a she'ifa for godless, he'll get the siyat of the shmaya to a degree that's almost supernatural. Again, that's the message of having it with help. The mitzvah was held in Shemayim. They, they had no way of knowing there's still one mitzvah left up there in Shemayim. They go to Moshe Rabbeinu and they say, Moshe, what can we do? And, and Moshe says this and they say that. Moshe says this and, and there's like no way out. What can we do? Moshe says, you know what? Let me go to Hashem and ask. Ask Hashem and Hashem says, yeah, there's one mitzvah left in reserve. Right over here, you got it. So, that's supernatural. Miraculously. They were successful. Miraculously. Teaches us a lesson. That's a lesson in Pesach Sheni. If you really want something good badly enough and you try and you try and you don't give up, you will supernaturally become successful. Very important second lesson from it. But turn the page and just find the right part. Perish Rashi Sarashi says, says Ramosha, Moshe, the Pasha should have been given through Moshe. But they deserved it. Tamuah. It tells us how great they are because it tells us who they are. It says, these were great people. But here it's telling us, oh, look at these great people. Well, who are they? They're just these anonymous individuals. So you're trying to tell us that someone is great, you have to at least tell us who they are. And the whole point of mentioning the Benos Slavchot, and their names are mentioned several times, is precisely to teach us the greatness of these individuals. But here, we don't know anything about it. Who are these great individuals? So therefore, why does the Torah write this here? So he says like this. The truth is that the importance of the anonymity is all the more drawn out based on the lesson that we said earlier. Namely, there are some people that are great individuals and therefore whatever they do, they're successful at. But the lesson over here is precisely that you don't have to be a great individual to be successful. The greatness is a measure of what you're doing, not a reflection on your inherent greatness. Therefore, says Rav Moshe, the limud over here is how great is the person that seeks. The person that's charedi alamitzis and really wants the bad, that's what makes you great. And therefore, you're left anonymous because it's not important who the person was. It's the fact that they wanted it so badly that teaches us, and that everybody could be. It's anybody. The person that's anonymous over here is called John Doe because it's John Doe. It's you and you and you. It's everybody. So it's not only Jerry Ziering that went to Eretz Yisrael. It's not only Jerry, it's by, as I said earlier, by extension, it's everybody else. So it's Mr. Everybody. It's even Joe Sixpack, as they say. He's also the person, whoever they are, because it's trying to highlight that it has nothing to do with your talents, with your skills, with your personal greatness. It only has to do with desire. It only has to do with attitude. The issue that we're discussing right now is one of attitude. Attitude anybody can have. Attitude is not is not in the domain of the great individuals. It's not only great people that have great attitudes. Anybody and everybody could be could have a great attitude. What do they say? People are searching for the city of happiness when they don't realize that it's 
a state of mind. It's a state of mind, not a city of happiness. It's not a place. It's a state of being. Attitudes are also like that. Attitude is not something that you go to school for, to learn four years and now you graduate and you're given a diploma for excellence in attitude. You know, every report card has an effort and attitude. That's for anybody. You don't achieve attitude. You have a good attitude or you have a bad attitude. So therefore it's important to leave it anonymous because it's everybody. Therefore, says Rabbi Moshe, it teaches us how great is the person that truly desires to serve Hashem with love, that he deserves success in having a mitzvah given through him. In other words, and these people both merited the same thing. They both got mitzvahs given to them, or through them. In the case of because they were great individuals. In the case of here, it's not because they were great individuals, it's precisely because they had great attitudes. They didn't have to have the commanded. Why should they care? They don't have the mitzvah. It's only because of the attitude as we said earlier at great length. Therefore, there's, it's precisely avoiding the mention of their names. Because if they would have names here, they got loosened that they're great people. That's why they received the mitzvah through them because they were so great. Just like we find by Benot Slavcha that their names are mentioned because they were great and they deserved uh, having a mitzvah given through them. But the fact that their names aren't mentioned and therefore we don't know about their greatness. We see only one thing. Chazinon, Sherak, Mitzad, Ritzoinam, Lekayim HaMitzvah. Zoch that their only reason why they got it was only one of attitude, that they had a great desire, nothing more. It's their desire alone that got them the success of having a mitzvah granted through them. From here he says, Firstly, a lesson is we should all perform mitzvahs with avo, with simcha, with the right attitude. It's true that we can no longer get mitzvahs come down from Shemaim through us. But obviously the reward of it is as great as being deserving of having mitzvahs given through us. That's the point. The point is we may never have new mitzvahs given down because of us, but we're worthy of it. A person that has this attitude is worthy of having mitzvahs and Torah being given through king. At least what they'll get is they'll be successful in understanding Torah. At least that much they will get. They'll understand that which God could still at least give them and, and they could still obtain that. So what we have over here is a very important lesson. Pesach Sheni is really a remarkable lesson and that's why I said it's for Jerry and by extension everybody that's here. It's for everybody, it's not only for Jerry. I mean unless you all go to Eretz Yisrael, you could like Jerry did, go to Eretz Yisrael. Right, that's exactly the point. If you're, th there is such a thing as being a great person and there's such a thing as having greatness in attitude. That's Pesach Shani. These people here were not great. Vinoslavchot were great. But these people were great because they had great attitudes. And that's what gave them the greatness. And therefore both got the same reward that a mitzvah was given through them. And Hashem held it in reserve to teach us the concept of greatness of attitude. It's a remarkable lesson that you learn out of Pesach Shani. Now, though, because I want to finish up just a couple of things, let's show the flip side of that on the one hand we had people here 
that had great attitudes and they want Pesach Sheni. But draw in contrast to that the beginning of the downfall and the decline. Page 363. And everybody, of course, notices the two inverted nuns. I'm not going to so much go into it. We've gone into the previous years about the two inverted nuns. But suffice it to say that it's, uh, the Gemara teaches us that it's because they, starting from here, there is a list of one decline after another. There's a whole spiral of decline. One thing after another, and travail after travail, and punishment after punishment, sin after sin. It goes from Baloscha to the next parsha, to Shlach, to the parsha after Korach. It goes one sin after the other. First sin, of course, is the Mon, and uh, rather, uh, you know, they were complaining about the traveling, then complaints about the Mon, and it goes on and on. But the question is, since the Nun is meant to be a kind of a break between one series of declines and the other, what was the first, what was the first sin that it's trying to interrupt the break between? I mean, the sins are only starting after this. What happened before that's deemed in any way sinful? So, they traveled away from the mountain of God for three days. Which is a very strange way of referring to the beginning of their traveling. So Chazal tell us that they journeyed away from the mountain of God. In fact, the word Vayisu is used in another context. If you look, it talks about by Lot. How Lot also traveled away from, from, uh, from Avram. So, Chazal say, they left like a child that runs out of school as soon as the school bell rings, they run away. In other words, you're leaving, but leave with humility, leave feeling bad. Like we just said before the story of the Gemara in Avodazar, the difference between a Jew and a guy leaving the sukkah. They're both leaving. You have to leave. It's raining, you're amidst tire. But as the Gemara says, Potter, you are. You have to go kick it. The Jew leaves with humility, like an Eved that walks away from his master. I spill. It's raining. He feels bad about his lack of opportunity to perform the mitzvah. The guy leaves. He's running out of that, and he's kicking the sukkah's attitude. Let now contrast the same thing over here. The people that wanted Pesach Sheni, yes, you're Potter. They argued with Moshe back and forth. Moshe, you're Potter. You're Potter. You're Potter. But they said, Why should we be deprived? Potter to them was still a deprivation. They're deprived. I gave them the example before. You got to get to work, so you need a car. You're Potter with a Chevy. You don't need a Lexus. You're Potter, it's going to get you there. Potter. Who thinks I'm Potter with a Chevy? I'm deprived of the Lexus. It depends. Some of them are. Some, some Chevys. But you're deprived. I'm deprived of the car. You're not Potter from the big car. You're deprived. From mitzvahs, you're Potter. From, from, from mitzvahs, you're Potter, you don't feel deprived. Pesach Sheni teaches us people's attitudes, greatness and attitude. I feel deprived from the mitzvah. The, contra- the, the contrast to that is Vayisu Me'ar Hashem, to run away, and that begins the beginning of the decline. And let's talk about the flip side of what we said earlier also. The same people 
that run away from Ruchnius want enhanced Gashmius. Enhanced Gashmius. And now I got to tell you a Medrash plea in order to, to be able to point this out. T- take a look, you have to see it. It's, it's a beautiful Medrash plea. The, the very next thing we have is the Pasuk where they start complaining about the Mon. So it says, if you look at Pasuk, hey, they start complaining, Vasafsuf, Asher Bekirbo, Hisabutav, which we'll explain in a second. They desire, desire, by Yeshua, you could come to and some of the Jews started crying, Who's going to give us flesh? Who's going to give us a good, good steak? Zohan was at Doga. We remember. I'm interested. 22 uh, ounce, right? We remember the steaks in Egypt. Zohan was at Doga, the fish that we ate in Egypt. Chinam, free. For free. And all the other stuff. And it came, it just come as a, as a steak. It comes together with Kishuim and Aftichim and Chotzer and Bitzol. It comes presented with the onions, right? You know, like a big Salisbury steak with those fried onions on top of it. With all what they call ambiance, presentation of it. And as I've said it many times, and I'll say it again, people spend money just for that. Ask anybody. If you go over to someone, I remember I was in Mark Mandel's house. He once ordered from La steaks for everybody who was making a scene. So it comes over, they're delivered in a big shopping bag, and you pull it out, and there's like these aluminum foil wrapped up tin things. Everybody gets their steak and eat it. It was delicious. It's delicious. But, you know, nobody wants that. The steak, your wife makes a piece of schnitzel, and it costs, or whatever, three, four, five dollars. You want to go to the restaurant, and you want to present it with a little bit of parsley there, and one of those edible flowers put on top of it, and that they should put the sauce in a way where they make marks through it, right? You know the way they do that? They make like the red or the blue or the black marks through it. Ah, presentation. All about this stuff. Of course. So you're spending, the, the steak is for $10. You're spending $40 for the ambiance. That means you're spending four times the amount for the presentation rather than for the actual food itself. The people were complaining about the presentation, as we'll see in a second. Zohan was we had with the fried mushrooms and with everything else on it. Zok the Medrash Pliya. Zohan was Hadoga, Mikan Shemadlikin Neiros Bishabas. Right? Medrash Pliya. Medrash, what's a Medrash Pliya? As we've already seen many times, when we get to Gemara's and Medrashim, they're very, very terse. And they just make a statement, like we had just the other day. Chutzrulai. You do a naver, you do it twice, hutshuloi, it's mutter. They're trying to drive on the point. Yeah, to you it's hutshuloi. That's the way you feel, it's showing you. Medrashim and Gemaras are very terse and very, you know, um, condensed in order to drive home certain points. When you get an extreme example of that, that's called a medrash plea. It drives home a point that you don't even see when you first look at it. Gemaras, you see it, but you have questions. What does the Gemara mean? And the Gemara say, oh, mayaskinon, it only applies here or there. It's very precise and succinct, but it's usually understandable and then you just have to be elaborated on. A medrash plea is that it's so succinct that you don't even know what it's talking about. That's, that's how condensed it is. Until you get the elaboration, then you see exactly what the medrash plea is saying. So let's take this example. This is a great example of how medrash plea operates. Zohan was hadog, we remember the fish of Egypt. From here, we learn the halacha or the lesson that you're supposed to light Shabbos candles Friday night. Okay? From here we see the halacha that every Jew does every Friday night. You know why you light Shabbos candles tonight? Tonight you're going to light Shabbos candles. Your wife's going to light. 
Why? Because this Pesach says that they were complaining about the Mon and they said, oh, Mon, Mon, nah. we want the free fish of Egypt. We want the steaks, we want the fish, who's going to give us meat? And from here we learn the rule that you light Shabbos candles. The truth is those that know, there's, a, there's already an obvious connection. But when you hear it first, it makes no sense. That's a Medrash Pliya. Explains the Chidah. He says, what was the complaint about the fish and about the meat? And here I'm going to try to be a little bit quicker. We know that the mon contained all of the tastes. It had all the taste that you want. Right? So they really wanted fish so badly. Say, mon tastes like fish. Not some fish, fried fish. Salmon, this kind of um, sea bass, uh, macadamia, not sea bass. You could say, and the mon will taste like it. Fish, meat, 22 ounce steak is what I want. The only problem, of course, was that he couldn't see it. Then call kachis avodah. So why did they just do it? He says, Chazal tell us, that the mon was a form of. It pulled its punches. It was pleasurable but painful at the same time. Why is that? Because you can't compare a person that has the presentation and sees it all with having mon that looks like mon but tastes like fish. Or it looks like money. You know, the best example is, I always think, you know, you, you, you go to someone and you say, oh, you want some potato chips? And you give them over a bag of potato chips and you just like crush it up into like a little thing. I mean, nobody eats that. Can you imagine eating potato? It's the same potatoes, it's fried the same way. You, you need to crunch. If you don't have that big chip there, you're able to put your mouth and crunch on it, it's not a potato chip. But it's the same thing. It's, it's, you know, you take the potato chip, you crush it up, you take the little then it's a powder and, and eat it. It tastes the same. It's minus the crunch. It's potato chips minus crunch. That's what it is. Uh, likewise, there's a lot, of, a lot of foods that are like that. So the food tasted the same, but it didn't look the same. And they wanted it to look just right. Hisabu Tava. They didn't just desire. They desired to have desire. The time wasn't that they had it. They needed the time. I have the, it's not enough. I need, it's not the steak, it's the sizzle, right? I don't want just the steak. Mon instant steak. I want to hear that sizzle. I remember in Egypt the presentation. I remember the way it was in the old days where you got that steak and it sizzled and smoked and you heard it and you saw it and it was presented, the ambiance. That's what we want, that's what we're missing. Hisabu tabo. They wanted time. They wanted perfect. So what do we see now? Let's contrast it. What is the difference between a Haredi and a modern Orthodox? And I said that I'm basing on the Gemara. The Sifri talks about the people they call them Haredin, and the Gemara refers Doris Rishonim and Doris Achreinim. How do you translate Doris Achreinim? Modern. Modern Orthodox. And we're not talking about conservative Chasachal. So Doris Achreinim is modern Orthodox. So now, Zok the Sifri, these people were Haredin. And the Gemara tells us in Brochus, modern Orthodox are people that Everything has to be kosher, kedas, or kedid. They don't want to do anything chas v'shalom that's usher. But their attitudes to the mitzvahs are unpopular. It's good enough, fine, vital. They don't, they wouldn't even chas v'shalom kick the sukkah. But they walk out, please. Vayisu mehar Hashem. They run away, continue kaboreach. Their attitude is one of, the charei demal mitzvahs, what do you mean? I'm deprived. The fellow feels deprived. He's deprived of his mitzvah. He feels deprived. But now let's contrast it with the people at the end of the parsha. 
they're running away from mitzvahs as soon as they're popular. But when it comes to presentation and food and restaurants, and there they want the best. The first thing, by the way, is about travel. They want to travel in style. So here what we have is at the beginning of the parsha we have those people that are charedim. They are looking for mitzvahs and mitzvahs and mitzvahs. And they don't want a way out. And their attitude is one they want it. Then we have those people in Vayisu Me'ar when it comes to mitzvahs, <laughs> they're like kids running out of school. But when it comes to traveling, oh, it's a little bit wary. It says, I can't travel like that. I got to travel in style. Food? So Chaim was a dog with all the... It looked like fish. It looked like steak. It was presented. There was a sizzle. I don't want just one. Hisavu Taiwan. They want perfection. So everybody basically wants perfection. Nobody goes around saying, yeah, it's good enough. I mean, there are some people like that, that they have no real desire for anything. Not Ruchnis, not Gashmis, but those are the wimped out people that never really make it anywhere. But we're talking about Jews that are driving for success and they want to make it in the world. So everybody wants perfection. So why is it that when it comes to mitzvahs, yeah, it's good enough. Adequate. Adequate is enough. When it comes to spirituality, it's good enough. When it comes to Gashmias, the car, the home, the food, it has to be perfect. It just tells you what your priorities are. So what we're dealing over here is attitudes. The difference between Doris Achroin and the modern Orthodox and the Pesach Sheni people that are Haredim is one of attitude. And it's where you place your attitude. You'll be successful. If you really want something badly enough, you'll be successful. But you have to want it badly enough. So if you want it badly enough and you close up your shop and you go off to learn for a year, whether in Eretz Yisrael or here or whatever it is, you want it. You want it badly enough. That's Pesach Sheni. And you'll be successful. Don't give up hope. You'll be successful. On the other hand, if you have the attitude, loss of love Hashem is going to prove to the guy that's why you didn't get the Torah. Yeah, because, yeah, you're willing to do the minimal amount. But when it comes to the rest of life, you're not doing things by the minimum. That's where you're maximizing. The difference between Charedim and Doiris Achreinim is this Nakuda. And it's a very important lesson to drive home because you talked before about, there's always a flip side, but we have to recognize this. We have to recognize the fact that the, that, that the people that search out for Chumras you could go sugar with that. You become a crazy person and it's not good, it's not healthy. It's not emotionally, mentally healthy. But there's something to be said that a person that is spending his money on a nice lulav and esrik rather than on a nice meal at a restaurant. How much does a meal in a restaurant cost? I mean, two, three people, what? $50. Per person, though. In a good, fancy restaurant. You go to Levana's, you go to one of these places. So you go with your, yourself and uh, two, three, four people. You spent already 200 bucks and you give the tip. And if you drove down and you had to park over there for 25 bucks, you walk out of the meal, you spent 250 dollars. No one really feels like, oh, I really spent a lot of money. What a crazy thing. You know, for 250 bucks, you can get yourself a very nice lulav and esrik. You know that? For 250 dollars, you can get yourself a gorgeous lulav and esrik. Overcharged. Price gouging. I mean, ridiculous. How could they charge so much? $200,000 price gouging. Then the next day, how am I? You go over there to a restaurant. You spend $250 at the restaurant. No one walks away. Wow, price gouging. A bottle of wine, a good bottle of wine, right? Yeah, you, you know about that, Michael. So, it's attitude. And Pesach Shani teaches us about people that are great and have greatness in attitude are ultimately successful. 
That's a tremendous lesson that we should learn from the parish of this Indian of attitude.